this short talk, I want to explain what I think has gone wrong with how higher education thinks about social media and why I believe this needs to change. To get this started, I think it's necessary to define the term or at least come close to. And for that reason, I wanted to start by saying that I think social media isn't a very useful term because there's clearly a sense in which all media are social. If media is something that mediates between people, then how could you have an asocial media? But at risk of stating the obvious, the terminology tends to be used to refer to a particular category of online services dependent on particular technological innovations like smartphones and fast wireless internet, which emerged in the early 2000s um, and were defined initially in terms of Web 2.0 by technology firms who were growing up in the background of the first dot-com crash and were very set on trying to demarcate what they were doing from what had come before. And so it's always been a slightly tropey term in that sense, something that does a lot of rhetorical work that it often doesn't account for. And I don't like it. And, for, you know, for this reason, I think it's very good that in the research literature, there's a tendency now to talk about social platforms, which I think is a much more helpful term. And what these social platforms have in common is the making and sharing of content using the affordances of these technological developments, which went hand in hand with the emergence of these firms. The political scientist Gary King once described this as the largest increase in the expressive capacity of humanity in the history of the world. And I think there's a strict sense in which that is an accurate claim. But I also want to treat it as emblematic of a certain way of thinking about social media, which when it comes to higher education, leaves us ill-equipped to think about the institutional and practical challenges it's creating. And in terms of what things fall into this category. There are the easily recognizable things like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. They're much less familiar. And if one goes looking, it's startling how many social platforms there are in existence, many of which are destined to eventually run out of money, having never turned a profit and eventually disappear from the internet. And there's also emerging platforms, ones which often generate a lot of hype, most recently first with Snapchat and then TikTok. And this all adds up to a rapidly changing and confusing landscape for academics and other professionals within universities trying to think about the role of social media. And in what I'm going to talk about, I'll be focusing on the academic perspective, but not because I think that's inherently more interesting or valuable, but because I, I think it's a useful lens which allows us to see broader issues about social media use within universities as institutions. It's surprisingly hard to provide a robust estimate of how many academics use social media, in part because it's methodologically surprisingly complex to define what we mean by social media and what use is taken to mean. But from the data that we have, we could estimate that between 13 and 30% of academics are using social media, and it's probably grown since then, particularly, as I suggest, because of COVID-19. And there's some evidence it's increasingly regarded as essential to indicate being publicly engaged. And I'll talk about how this ties into the impact agenda. But it's important to stress how it's also used by journals, research centers, departments, and universities. And it's become a mainstream part of academic life in a relatively brief period of time. In fact, in some cases, it's taken for granted. So for example, it's rare to come across a funded research project that doesn't have a digital presence attached to it. In terms of academics and how these issues are talked about within higher education, 
there's a whole list of familiar claims that are made about why academics use social media. And there's a question mark about whether these are descriptions of why academics actually use social media as an empirical claim, or if this is why academics should use social media. But these ideas are things like expanding networks, encouraging people to read publications, getting work out there much more quickly, connecting with audiences, feedback on work in progress, different places to publish, endless opportunities to talk about ideas, ways to explore beyond the boundaries of one's field and the capacity to keep up with developments. And of course, under, underpinning so many of these is the promise of visibility. It's important that we think about the timescale when social media began to emerge because it happened on a similar timescale to the impact agenda. And although these were seemingly earlier in 2004, 2006, and 2006 for uh, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, when we think about how long it took for them to build a critical mass, become socially salient, we are very much in the terrain when the research which entered into the 2014 REF impact case studies was being conducted. Their sustained growth, I think, seemingly promises the potential for impact. As I'll mention again later, Patrick Dunleavy from the LSE has made convincing arguments that shorter, better, faster, free communication overcomes traditional barriers to engagement. We can see this endorsed from the top down by the National Center of Coordinating Center for Public Engagement in the ESRC. And within institutions, um, there's an increasingly complex machinery, which I've come to think of as the impact machine which involves many intermediaries, impact champions, formal or informal, officers, consultants, trainers. And as I'll explain, I come to this as a researcher in a digital sociologist who works in the education department, but also as someone who's had a dual career and has worked as a social media practitioner for over 10 years. But we also shouldn't leave aside the bottom-up turn to online engagement, the extent to which academics have, to varying degrees, come to social media because they want to embrace a public role alongside other motivations. Well, I, I mentioned the promise of visibility, and I think this is a very interesting one to understand the user culture that's built up around academic social media in the universities. One starting point for this is to think about the challenge of visibility. Um, again, it's hard to conclusively estimate non-citation rates, but one fairly convincing estimate suggests 82% of publications in humanities, 32% in the social sciences, and 27% in the natural sciences go unsighted. And when we're thinking of potentially years of work going into journal articles, which receive you know, under a few hundred views in many cases, alongside a background of an estimated 2.5 million journal articles published each year, then it's easy to see why the immediacy of publication and speed of circulation can be intoxicating for academics. And what I want to suggest is that this enthusiasm has tended to circulate through a public pedagogy, a way of talking about how academics can and use, should use social media to other academics that has been influential in shaping how practice has emerged over time. And this is mediated through things like training sessions, online resources, traditional publications, blog posts, podcasts, slide decks, and word of mouth. And it has a very odd culture to it, I think, in some ways. There's a deep projection of what are seen as academic hermits and neo-Luddites who don't get it or are scared by it. But there is a positive vision here, one of, as Levy, as I mentioned earlier, puts it shorter, better, faster, free research communication. Being an open source scholar, 
Digital scholarship has an entirely new approach to what it is to generate and work with knowledge, something which has become ubiquitous during the pandemic. There's a sense in which we're all digital scholars now, most obviously if we recognize that platforms like Zoom and Teams are quite obviously social platforms. And yet in spite of this ubiquity, I want to argue that the public pedagogy and user culture within higher education has failed to adapt. And this is problematic, but it's also curious because we're still talking about social media in many cases as if it's something new, interrupting from outside. And it's been a mainstream part of academic life for many years. And I come to this as someone who's advocated for social media within higher education for over a decade as a researcher and as a practitioner. And this is my book, Social Media for Academics, which was the initial expression of my, of my work as a practitioner in 2016. A second edition was published in 2019. And I've been doing this for long enough now that you know, I find it interesting to think back about how things have changed during this time. So when I first got involved in this activity um, in the course of a part-time PhD in 2009 and 2010, the character of my advocacy as well as others was shaped by pervasive skepticism. And it's interesting to note the kind of people who were early adopters and have contributed to generating this culture. There were established academics whose status as early adopters could be leveraged into academic capital. And there were people like myself who were paid to do training sessions to promote um, you know, new ways of working who leverage this into you know, what's sometimes called side hustles or side careers. And I think the precarity of that position and the opportunities that this route opened up have shaped what the advocacy meant in practice. And this tendency to frame social media as something new to which academics ought to adapt because of individual benefits is something that we need to see in this context because as much as I've never done a workshop that I'm uncomfortable with in any way, I've been aware of the remit of the workshops I'm asked to do. They tend to be about encouraging people and I often try and include a lot of content on preparing for problems, but it still entails a focus on individual practice, which as a practitioner I had no problem with, but as a sociologist, I think systematically neglects the systemic dimensions of social media within higher education in ways that in my research career I've sought to try and explore. And this tendency towards individualization is reinforced because the research literature around social media for academics tends to be reliant on interviews and surveys. It tends to take the individual as the unit of analysis and institutional questions only really figure insofar as that they impinge on the lives and experience of those individuals. And I think this is a problem because we can see a number of issues emerging around social media in higher education which I don't believe are being addressed in an adequate way. And I'm going to talk about three of them now, but these are far from the only three. The first is what I've come to see as the impact catable. Um, I've done work with Katie Jordan from the University of Cambridge, which has been published on the LSE blog, and hopefully we've got a paper coming out later this year. And during this work, I've become very interested in the kind of popular imaginary of social media as a dissemination engine to get research from in here to users out there. And I, I think there's a whole way of um, imagining the relationship of the university to wider society that's often implied by how research dissemination through social media is talked about, as if we are locked up in here with our valuable knowledge commodities and all we have to do is find a sufficiently powerful way to sling this knowledge far enough over the walls of the ivory tower 
so that the imagined hordes of eager re end users will finally have access to things that were formerly trapped behind journal paywalls and or locked into arcane language that wasn't possible to understand. And it's a sense in which the problem is one of openness, which is a very loaded term that science and technology studies and critical philosophers of the digital have spent a lot of time unpicking. And this kind of expectation of openness implies that all we need to do is eliminate closure for things to circulate more widely. And I'm not saying this is entirely false, but I think it carries a lot of baggage, which is rarely explicated. Impact practitioners, of course, realized that engagement and impact aren't the same thing. But in the work Katie and I did, we found that the 2014 Ref Impact case studies are nonetheless full of naive citations of platform metrics. And this makes sense, I think, when we consider the problem of building an impactful culture when there's a lack of clarity and a pervasive uncertainty about what impact means in practice. And the argument we've made is that social media popularity began to figure as a proxy for impact capacity or social media dissemination began to figure as a proxy for you know, the kind of preconditions for impact. This is compounded by an absence of platform metric literacy within higher education, by which I simply mean that there's a preoccupation with follow accounts. People tend to read platform metrics in naive ways and not think about what they actually mean in practice, what we can learn from them, the degree to which they're commensurable or not. And this is a problem in its own terms because it fails to lead to adequate social media practice. It misdirects attention and energy at what Pasto et al. talk about as the impact interface. It leaves academics preoccupied by the pursuit of visibility in a way that excludes the kind of careful relational work, which is actually so much more beneficial for the generation of research impact, particularly over time. A second problem is that of academic celebrities. And of course, these predate social media, something which Peter Walsh has usefully noted as reflecting a long-term crisis in academic monograph sales. There was a notorious paper quite some time ago now, the Kardashian Index, which talked about the measure of discrepant social media profile for scientists. And although this was fairly scathing, and I think not quite as funny as the author thought it was, it did raise a hugely important point, and the fact it circulated so widely suggests it resonated with others, because it identified the fact that social media visibility and academic prestige were not always correlated with each other. And it was a sign of a new kind of hierarchy entering into the academy, one which I'll talk about a bit more later. And in this sense, I think we can see social media as having facilitated an expansion of academic thought leaders and influencers. And I put those terms in inverted commas because I think we should treat them critically. But I'm not convinced this is inherently a bad thing, but I think it is a complex thing and bad things can follow from not recognizing and engaging with that complexity. Not least of all, because social media in this sense has generated a category to which a greater number and range of people might aspire. And by that, I don't mean that, you know, young academics are preoccupied by becoming necessarily what Liz Morris has called the Trump academic. But I think it's more subtle than that. And social media visibility becomes just one metric amongst others on which the, the, the ambitious young academic in a hurry is liable to search for excellence in an institutional climate in which excellence is demanded for everyone. There is, of course, 
a potentially more diverse pool of celebrity academics. And I don't want to dismiss this point by any means, because I think this is a very positive development. But I think we have to recognize this is not the unsettling of hierarchies within the academy per se, but rather their multiplication. We now have social media hierarchies within the academy, which can be leveraged into academic rewards and opportunities through dynamics that are still understudied. And these exist alongside traditional hierarchies within the academy. And this results in an environment where rewards flow to those who are known, valued, and heard. And as I've said, it might be that the ranks of the known, value, and heard are more diverse, and that's a positive thing. But the corollary to this is that those who are unknown, unvalued, and unheard will struggle to increase their standing in social media with potential implications for how hierarchies manifest in the academy more broadly. The third problem I wanted to mention is the intensification of labor by which I simply mean that social media is becoming or has become a professional expectation and it's not workloaded. So more labor is necessary, but with the same amount of time. And this leads to a greater intensity of work. There are more things to do, but not more time in which to do them. And this can be particularly corrosive because of the tendency of academics or at least many academics to get sucked into social media. Something which I've often thought can be explained in terms of Pierre Bourdieu's description of their excessive confidence in the powers of language. As a former senior Facebook figure, uh, Jeff Hammerbacher once put it, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. These are environments optimized to generate ever-increasing user engagement, to get people to spend longer online, to get them to click on more things while they're there, to get them to produce and engage with more content. And my concern, which I think is borne out by events, is that there's a kind of scholastic cultural legacy of scholastic culture within the academy that leaves academics primed to overvalue the kinds of exchanges that happen through social media, particularly, for example, debates on a platform like Twitter, while the platforms themselves are designed in order to encourage people in to get them to spend more time on there. And for this reason, I think we need to be mindful of how platforms seek to encourage and incite behavior, how they tempt and tease and draw people into what Richard Seymour has called the Twittering machine. You know, once we're conscious of these mechanisms, they're not particularly hard to avoid. But my fear is that the prevailing user culture within higher education surrounding social media militates against this because it tends to reproduce the competitive individualism of what Philip Bostel and I have called the Accelerated Academy and provides a new venue through which it can be intensified. And in short, what I want to argue is that I think we need a new public pedagogy. We need a new way of training and teaching academics about social media, of sharing best practice and of having professional dialogues about what we do when we use social media. But we also need a new user culture as well. And the first can be a means to the, the second, but the two don't always go hand in hand. And the problem, as I see it, is that we, we're faced with a ranking overload in which the kind of peer assessments of collegial rep reputation go hand in hand with citational measures. But now we have platform popularity as well. And there is some degree of convertibility between these. So, for example, the esteemed academic who quickly uh, generates a large following when they set up a new Twitter account. But we're still unsure about how these dynamics work in practice. And it's true, it's the, the, the sense in which the notion of popularity or influence, which is built into social media platforms, I think has already made a transition 
into thought and practice in everyday life in the university. And as Roger Burroughs and others have demonstrated, we work in an incredibly metricized academy. And in this sense, the higher education institutions have been primed to already incorporate social media metrics. This is a very early, this is, we're at a very early stage in this process, but I think it will be an ongoing process. And we urgently need to think about the work this hierarchy is doing with higher, within higher education in order to offer better user culture, a sustainable user culture, a satisfying user culture. Um, in my forthcoming book with Lambros Fatsis, The Public and Their Platforms, we've explored this at great depth, including trying to think about the kind of broader climate of the, the cultural wars which are being fought around and within higher education and what it means to develop collective responses to this and what potential solutions we can find to mediate the problems that platforms are generating. At the level of culture, I, I think it's quite a straightforward things like not pursuing visibility as an end in itself because it will follow if you're doing something which people find valuable. Not pursuing influence as an end in itself because it will come if you build meaningful relationships with people and not obsessing over metrics because they get in the way of strategizing more often than they help to formulate a strategy. But as I've said, I think this is really important because when we see this in a wider context, when we see the relationships between students and academics, between students and universities, between academics and managers, and we see how these relationships connect up to a increasingly polarized difficult and uncertain context, all the more so with the the social and public health and political and economic crisis of the pandemic, then while social media is could be seen as in some sense a peripheral part of this broader picture, I think it's a vector through which so much is going to take shape that how professional groups in the academy orientate themselves to it, how they define professional standards and how they shape their practice is actually an incredibly important issue and one which is not, I think, adequately being covered by those who specialize in social media use within the academy and also other groups like professional associations and trade unions aren't giving it due consideration. And so I hope this is, a, 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 this is intended as a modest overview of what I see these issues as being and hopefully as a way to start a conversation about how we think about the role of social media within higher education and how we regulate it while also trying to realize the promise that I still believe is latent within it in spite of these many problems.